everybody. This is going to be episode three of the Toad and Beans podcast. We're going to jump right into this episode's topics, so thanks for listening. states I've lived in, the more I've realized every state has their own unique take on their history. And Kansas is no exception. While Kansas's take might be debatably a bit skewed, the factual events surrounding the event are not necessarily well known, but are certainly very interesting. So for this week's topic, I will be talking about bleeding Kansas. For those who grew up in Kansas and listened during Kansas history, some teachers will tell you that the American Civil War did not actually start on April 12th in 1861 with Confederate troops firing upon Fort Sumter in South Carolina, but rather they will tell you it started years earlier in Kansas during a series of violent conflicts from 1854 until about 1859 known as Bleeding Kansas. While I don't necessarily think the Civil War started in Kansas, I think the events in Kansas undeniably were a significant contributing factor to America's bloodiest war. So what Bleeding Kansas was, was a violent conflict over the legality of slavery in the proposed state of Kansas. The conflict was between pro-slavery border ruffians out of Missouri and anti-slavery free staters in the Kansas Territory. The border ruffians, who had been crossing into Kansas Territory, resulted in years of electoral fraud on the subject of Kansas's status as a slave state upon gaining statehood. Kansas's status as a slave state was so significant on a national scale because if Kansas became a free state, it would tip the balance of power in the Senate, which was evenly divided at the time, to free states having two more senators than the pro-slavery southern states. The voter fraud came into play out of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which stated that the settlers of a territory would vote on the status of the state's stance on slavery, a concept known as popular sovereignty. During this time of decision in Kansas, Missourians were attempting to influence the decision by claiming to be Kansas settlers. And interestingly enough, the bleeding Kansas conflict mirrored the Civil War on a micro scale. So within Kansas, there were two capitals, the anti-slavery Topeka capital and the pro-slavery capital out of Lecompton, which each drafted their own constitutions. These early elections and legislatures eventually boiled over into violence in 1855 when a pro-slavery settler shot and killed a free stater in Douglas County. The subsequent years resulted in multiple skirmishes, Senator Preston Brooks attacking Senator Charles Sumner on the U.S. Senate floor regarding the events in Kansas, and then perhaps most notably, abolitionist John Brown and his sons attacking a pro-slavery settlement at Pottawatomie Creek as a prelude to his famous full-scale insurrection in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which is now part of West Virginia. The violence in Kansas eventually coined the term Bleeding Kansas from an article in the New York Tribune. 
Kansas was admitted to the Union as a free state on January 29, 1861, which, interestingly enough, was the same day Southern senators departed the Senate during the secession crisis that eventually led to the Civil War, giving the Senate enough votes to gain statehood for Kansas as a free state. topic for this episode was born out of a documentary I heard about on another podcast about the Bee Gees. This HBO documentary, which is called The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, came out in 2020 and chronicles the storied career of the Bee Gees, which is both incredible and tragic. First and foremost, I had no idea I knew so many Bee Gees songs, nor did I know how much I liked them and how influential they were. In this documentary, I was captivated by the fact that they essentially had the career of two bands in one, and then obviously it introduced to me the amazing movie that is Saturday Night Fever. The original band was comprised of three brothers out of Australia, Barry Gibb, Robin Gibb, and Maurice Gibb, all of which were exceptional vocalists and musicians. After gaining popularity in Australia, they relocated to England in early 1967, where they were picked up by the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein. They gained English and international popularity fairly soon after relocating, but what I find so interesting is the commonly known Bee Gees disco sound of the 70s is not their 60s sound whatsoever. They sound very comparable to the early pop sound of the Beatles. They sometimes had a bit of a folk sound in songs like Massachusetts, which is an incredible underrated tune. And they completely lacked the signature Bee Gees falsetto vocal backing that was so prominent in their later music. After a few years of peak fame, the band started to experience some turmoil and broke up in 1969 while members pursued solo careers. They reconciled those fairly soon after in 1970 and only had moderate success and a few hits, one of which was How Can You Mend a Broken Heart in 1971. But by 1973, they were in a complete rut and went from playing arenas back to playing in clubs by 1974. So, in search of some revitalization, they took the advice of friend Eric Clapton in 1975 and again relocated, this time to Miami, Florida. They turned their sound from more of a ballad sound to the dance vibe of Florida and came out with hits like Jive Talkin' and Nights on Broadway, which Nights on Broadway is where they discovered their now signature sound of a prominent falsetto vocal track. After this, they became the poster of the disco sound, which was cemented by their soundtrack for the movie Saturday Night Fever, featuring the amazing dance moves of Bay Ridge bad boy Tony Morano, portrayed by John Travolta. The soundtrack featured hit after hit, with songs like Stayin' Alive, How Deep Is Your Love, Night Fever, More Than a Woman, and If I Can't Have You, which on the movie was performed by Yvonne Elliman. But with the death of disco in 1979, which is a whole other topic, 
the Bee Gees' popularity started to wane, but their influence on music and worldwide culture in general has been felt for generations. final topic of the podcast, the wildcard topic, briefly dives into what is going on with the bees. And I will preface this with most of the information from this portion of the podcast is being taken from Greenpeace's Save the Bees project. So first of all, who cares about bees? Why are they so important? Well, honeybees, both wild and domestic, perform about 80% of all worldwide pollination. A single bee colony can pollinate 300 million flowers in a single day. While grains are primarily pollinated by the wind, which is why, say, Kansas is a wheat state, fruits, nuts, and vegetables are pollinated by bees. And this is the most staggering statistic, in my opinion. 70 out of the top 100 human food crops, which supply about 90% of the world's nutrition, are pollinated by bees. Wow. Now that we've established the importance of bees, what's going on with them? Well, the bottom line is there has been an incredible reduction in bee population. From 1962 to present day, the number of bee colonies per hectare has declined by 90%. Two of the major contributing factors to the decline in bee population are pesticides and habitat loss. So what can we do about all this? Again, I'm taking this information from Greenpeace's Save the Bees project, but they do propose the three following solutions. One, ban the seven most dangerous pesticides. Two, protect pollinator health by preserving wild habitat. And three, restore ecological agriculture. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but I think it's clear that we as stewards of the planet could and should take action, maybe on a personal level or maybe in the form of legislation to help save the bees. That rounds it out for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.